Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. Welcome. So... How does the label lunatic get weaponized and misused? This is especially important for those of us whose cosmologies fall outside Eurocentric and capitalist forms of meaning making, because we're disproportionately more likely to get labeled and pathologized as lunatics or as crazy. So, In the article titled Shamans, Savages in the Wilderness on the Audibility of Dissent and the Future of Civilizations, the Indian political psychologist Dr. Ashish Nandi wrote the following, quote, perhaps in the present global culture, the shaman taken metaphysically as the opposition to the king and the priest remains the ultimate symbol of authentic dissent representing the utopian and transcendental aspects of the child, the lunatic, the androgynous, and the artist, end quote. So, of course, there's a lot for us to unpack there, particularly related to the language of shamanism, because, right, it's rooted in Sanskrit, but it so often gets misused and taken outside of its original context. But in this insight, Nandi's sharing a powerful revelation about dissent, that the most substantial forms of dissent are typically cast aside as what? Lunacy, as crazy. As in, if you're self-determined or autonomous enough to be living out, say, your cultural or your ancestral ways, and especially if you're not, say, just pandering to the mainstream, that stance is especially likely to get misread as lunacy. You know what this means? That if we want to understand formidable ways of getting free and being free, 
we've got to stop expecting that there are going to be legible, right, within the status quo, right, two folks that might still be caught up in that mainstream storytelling. We can't only interpret liberation in ways that are sanctioned by the mainstream, whether it's a sanctioned by a mainstream modernism, maybe even sanctioned by a mainstream postmodernism. So Professor Ashis Nandi continues on in that article saying the following, quote, these theories must recognize the existence of dissent that's not only, quote, insane, end quote, and quote, infantile, end quote, but which flouts the first canon of all post-enlightenment theories of knowledge, namely that for a dissent to qualify as dissent, it must be fully translatable into the idiom of modernity to survive beyond the tenure of the modern knowledge systems the language of liberation will have to take into account respectfully the quests for freedom which are articulated in other languages and in other forms sometimes even through the language of silence end quote so what did he mean here that to take liberation seriously, we have to be willing to move beyond the most conventional understandings available to us in any given time and place, as in expanding what some call the Overton window, which is a technical term for the politics or the policies that are considered acceptable by the mainstream at any given time which brings us to lunacy, which is such a refreshingly potent counter to respectability politics that would have us constrained by what's already considered generally acceptable. Respectability politics pressures us to ceaselessly pander to oppressive audiences. Oppression sets the terms of the debate you show up and are expected to speak the language of oppression, dress the way the status quo told you to, leave your family's religion or spirituality or values at the door, and aspire to be as basic as possible to keep it real, to fit in with the baseline of the unjust mediocrity around us. So lunacy, on the other hand, offers up us a way out of that sort of hamster wheel of death, so to speak. We know that the most substantial critiques regularly get delegitimated as allegedly crazy. This is one of the political dimensions at the core of how saneism operates. And if millions of people continue just hedging around the standards that have been set by this omnicidal death cult, well, we're done for. So give thanks then that we can resist reconnecting with what we know that we may have suppressed within a violently ignorant culture or what we could remember if only we allowed ourselves to know what's not exactly trending within that mainstream oppressive context. So if you've ever censored yourself because you were concerned that you might be considered a lunatic, let's get into it.
So this is especially, right, the case for folks that are interested in substance, right, going beyond what's just kind of topical within some superficial spaces within the broader culture. We've got to prepare, actually, to potentially get diminished via this kind of sanest languaging, if it hasn't happened to you already, because this is definitely something that's, right, incredibly popular, unfortunately, within the mainstream culture these days. And you know that that oppressive kind of invalidation, because that's what it is in part, is definitely going to be thrown faster and thrown more forcefully at some of us than others and along predictable lines of privilege and oppression, right? So... Maybe you see people unyieldingly calling corrupt politicians, quote, lunatics, end quote. If so, have you sensed that there's a lot to unpack there? Let's start off by delving into that dimension of complexity, especially considering the current U.S. political climate. Have you ever, for example, heard people call President Trump or other violent oppressors lunatics? It's super common. This is one of the reasons why it's important to attend to the politics of madness and sanity in our present moment when it comes to lunacy. So madness, right, and what gets called mental illness are topics that are deployed in myriad ways by a variety of different communities. For example, madness and lunacy more specifically are periodically used as justification for killing sprees, such as specifically imperialist killing sprees. So Robert Fisk's 2012 article in The Independent titled Madness is Not the Reason for This Massacre discusses observations in the rhetoric of explaining several recent U.S. soldiers' massacres against unarmed civilians that have been attributed to so-called mental instability. The correspondent states, I'm getting a bit tired of the quote-unquote deranged soldier story. It was predictable, of course. The 38-year-old staff sergeant who massacred 16 Afghan civilians, including nine children, near Kandahar this week, had no sooner returned to base than the defense experts and the think tank boys and girls announced that he was, quote, deranged, end quote. Not an evil, wicked, mindless terrorist, which he would be, of course, if he had been an Afghan, especially a Taliban, but merely a guy who went crazy, end quote. These kinds of stories, for one, reveal the importance of ensuring that the, quote, defense experts and think tank boys and girls, end quote, to which Fisk references hold no monopoly on the public imagining of sanity and altered states of consciousness. To be clear, when U.S. soldiers go on global killing sprees, they often use mental instability as a defense, specifically in court, to let them off the hook. Imperialism isn't madness. This miscategorization is a real problem. 
does this remind you of the way that some people talk about President Donald Trump as allegedly, quote, out of his mind, end quote, or allegedly so-called crazy? That's sanism at play quite often. People could just be more direct, for example, by calling him oppressive or unjust, right, or engaging in illegal activity. So, right, this is one of the principal ways that the language of lunacy is getting misused, especially within the mainstream culture and today. But that brings us to the question, what exactly does lunacy even mean? Let's be intentional about our words and what they really mean. How about diving into this particular form of sanest language? Millions of folks are more likely to turn to the internet than paper dictionaries. So if somebody was to do a Google search, for example, to see what lunatic means, this is what they would find. Quote, noun, mentally ill person, parentheses, not in technical use, similar, maniac, madman, madwoman, psychopath, psychotic or in adjective use, mentally ill, and again in parentheses, not in technical use. A synonym is a psychopath? For real? What else do y'all observe about that definition? First off, I interpret that not in technical use piece to indicate that this isn't exactly, say, a diagnostic category from the DSM or another text. Uh, that's in use these days. Rather, the word is used, right, kind of in layman, so to speak, right, or in layperson's terminology. And secondly, that reference to mental illness is clearly pathologizing. It's medicalizing. Talking about sickness and illness, which usually has a stigma and a negative value judgment attributed to it. It's also important, if you ask me, to note that lunacy is deeply gendered, and it's more often to be associated with women and with girls, say, than with, right, cis men and boys. I'd be super curious to see some research or to learn about what this looks like for trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming folks, although I definitely haven't seen any research around that yet. So if you know anything about that, please let me know. That would be rad to be able to learn about. Uh, and so it's really important to pause and to back up here when we are looking at that kind of definition and just to remember something that we've already talked about quite a bit so far in this autumn series, that the settler colonial U.S. culture is rooted in what? In epistemologies of ignorance, right? So that's the norm when we're steeped in unawareness, a kind of technologic culture that's horrifically out of sync with natural cycles, with seasons, with rhythms, right? That might be invisible, although in plain sight. And so this is one of the reasons why, if you ask me, if we want to talk about, say, the Mad Pride movement more broadly and making movement in that direction for BIPOC, especially, who face disproportionate injustice at the prospect of being called mad or being called crazy or being called insane, 
that we need to actually be grounded in concepts that aren't just kind of recentering Eurocentric, right, or U.S. forms of storytelling, such as neurodivergence, for example. So there's something about talking about lunacy, right, that even taking it back to ancient Greek philosophy is rooted in the idea of moonstruck. It's relational, right? It's related to the Earth's moon, Got to step back and keep it humble and acknowledge there are multiple moons, right, within even this one universe that we're in right now. And so we're talking specifically about the Earth's moon, right? So there's a rootedness when it comes to the term lunacy that really merits unpacking, if you ask me. And so what's up with, for millennia, so many of our peoples and so many of our cultures and traditions and ancestral ways, right, having super sophisticated ways for talking about and understanding the moon that have just gotten so seamlessly wrapped up in this broader sanest project right within the eurocentric mainstream culture and around that there was actually an article from 2019 published by the BBC that was called The Mood Altering Power of the Moon. I'm curious to know if any of y'all might have seen that article last year. The Mood Altering Power of the Moon. It opened in the following way, saying, quote, the idea that the lunar cycle can influence people's behavior dates back thousands of years but has been largely dismissed by modern medicine. But new research suggests there may be some truth to these ancient theories, end quote. Uh, and so I'm not gonna write belabor the point of that embarrassing kind of Eurocentric and colonial hubris, right, of saying, right, people have been talking about this for thousands of years, and the mainstream culture has been delegitimating that storytelling for thousands of years, but now scientists have taught us something, and actually the moon does have the capacity to impact human moods, right? And so it really merits unpacking some of what is going on in that kind of storytelling. So unfortunately, that kind of ignorance often deploys scientistic language for its own justification. So academic knowledge is oftentimes created in an astoundingly slow fashion slowly enough that, say, individual researchers can benefit in terms of their own personal fame and fortune, aka finance capital and social capital, right, for folks that are into the theoretical language. Yet it's supposed to be seen as impressive. So this is why some things might seem like an epic intervention or cutting-edge scientific research that are actually ancient givens, frankly. If only we had the respect to pay more attention to what our ancestors gifted us, which of course can be a tremendous endeavor unto itself when so much wisdom had to go underground, was repressed, was suppressed, and is in need of salvaging from that kind of syncretic hiding historically. So it's important to not minimize, right, that that work can take a lifelong journey, right, to be able to really substantially reconnect. 
But the thing is, had we, right, really taken seriously that kind of reconnection with our ancestral wisdom, which is still available to us, as challenging as it might be for sure, right, then we might not be kind of idly waiting for profit motives to catch up as the world is unnecessarily burning. So more broadly, that kind of, right, scientism, like in this BBC article about the mood-altering properties of the moon, is actually super peculiar, right? There's nothing normal about it. There's nothing natural about that, right? We could go so far as to call mainstream scientism weird. And what do I mean by that word weird? It's actually an acronym that some researchers use. It stands for the following words, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. We can contest some of this framing, but I'm sure you're picking up what folks are putting down that use that language, right? Maybe aspirationally democratic, say, educated in some kind of way. Uh, and so if weird science is just starting to realize that celestial bodies have material impacts on human bodies, then what else have they been missing this whole time? Furthermore, what are the implications to be gleaned moving forward from such processes if we choose to pay attention to the insights that are rarely laid out in that weird storytelling? We can't wait for the mainstream to catch up when the world is on fire in the way that it is right now, especially in a culture such as this one where wisdom isn't trending. Also, knowing that what are we letting impact our consciousness, right? Do we seriously have to wait until, right, scientists with that level of hubristic ignorance catch up to what so many of our ancestors have known for millennia, right? If that is the place of potential kind of insecurity, frankly, in terms of what we know, I sincerely invite us to lavish some care in that direction so that we can have more confidence in taking seriously some of our cultural wisdom and knowledge, even if, right, scientism hasn't really figured out yet that some of us actually had validity to our knowledge claims, right? Even if their ignorance, even if their structural obliviousness hasn't allowed them to yet be able to actually have respect for some of those insights. Also, what does this mean about the impact of other celestial bodies? So, for example, even if these scientistic scientists are now finally conceding in publications from 2019, okay, okay, right, the Earth's moon does actually have some impact on human moods. What's that mean about other celestial bodies like, say, Jupiter? Does this mean that there might be something to astrology? So this would be immensely inconvenient, right, as a reality for weird science to have to contend with, especially this late in the game. 
maybe that explains a little bit of their cognitive dissonance, right? That of some scientists that might have astoundingly closed minds when it comes to certain fields that they might have just a priori, right, closed themselves off from, right, or partitioned outside of the realm of what they're even learning, right, about with any kind of humility to begin with. How are you going to know whether or not something has truth value if you're not even open to looking in that direction. So after all, weird science, and again, using that acronym of Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, that kind of weird science, has partially banked its legitimacy off of stigmatizing other methods of knowing. Much of the canon likely isn't going to grapple with these serious implications, certainly not anytime soon. Just like in other Western weird fields, such as say, philosophy and politics, we're at this bit of a precipice. At what point are people going to recognize that what has gotten called progress for sure in the past couple centuries, and what has been rebranded as development more recently, is what's more or less substantially supporting climate catastrophe, the sixth mass extinction, and a whole host of other calamities. This is a classic example of Orwellian doublespeak, where development and progress are actually materially on the ground, creating omnicide and annihilationism. But if people are so seduced by the rhetoric, progress, development, I want to progress, I want to be developed, right, maybe from a place of, right, colonially imposed lack or a sense of inferiority, right, or a sense of being behind and needing to catch up, right, to Western or to white irresponsibility, then that kind of doublespeak might actually seem compelling for some people. I wonder if you know anyone that might have been seduced by that kind of rhetoric. Certainly within my own life, right, I have family members that lived through the decolonization of their society whose minds in 2020 still, right, are entirely seduced by that kind of developmentalist rhetoric, right, which just totally takes, right, those oppressive terms of the debate, right, those colonial core presuppositions as truths, as a given, right, as just the way it is, as totally beyond reproach, unfortunately, doesn't really make room to pause and to even ask if people are into these linear teleologies, is there a chance that, right, folks, humanity, civilizations could be devolving as opposed to evolving and potentially in an astounding manner, right? So if we just take seriously this language of being backwards or being forward thinking, so often, unfortunately, that can actually obscure more than it's illuminating. So, to take on all of these civilizational myths, it'd help for people to be humble and to be open at a deep level. Or we could wait for our setting to get even more dire and even more life-threatening before people choose to wake up. Some folks 
clearly seem invested in that latter option. This is why it's funny to see folks tiptoeing on eggshells around such obvious implications. So whether it's a corporate media pundits, right, or politicians, say in the House of Representatives, having the audacity to talk about, quote, our democracy, end quote, right? At some point, people do need to stop being dishonest and just cut that out. So if they're confused or if they're being deceptive at that obvious of a level, they shouldn't be in those positions. They need to go back to the drawing board and learn the most basic definitions of the words that they're using. Although in some spaces, we're not even allowed to say such things, say that the US isn't a democracy or that mainstream ideas of progress and development are horrifically backwards. Areas that we're not allowed to be curious around. Don't innovate in that direction. Don't be curious about going down that rabbit hole. Do you see how this has dire implications? This is also a little bit of what is at stake here. So taking it back more broadly, right, to how the notion of lunacy, right, comes into play very specifically here within this broader context of the politics of knowledge that we're talking about. I actually want to share a little bit of an observational question for y'all. Do you know the face of the moon right now? What is it? And if you do know, how did you know? Now, I'm not going to give you all the correct answer right now because I don't know when you'll be engaging this activity for folks that listen to this audio later. But if you don't know immediately, extra credit, actually, if you look up in the sky before, say, jumping to an app or anything requiring the internet to answer this question. So just again, almost like a little bit of an observational pop quiz. What's the face of the moon right now? And I ask this in part because, right, taking it back, how would we even know whether or not the moon had an impact on our mood if we weren't even open to that possibility, if we weren't even paying attention, right? So on that front, I also do want to share a bit of an invitation to reflect with y'all. So I'm curious to get a sense of what your relationship is with the moon. So if you're open to writing that down and maybe even doing a little bit of journaling around that later or reflecting, I would like to invite you to be with that curiosity for a few minutes. And I encourage you to write, allow yourself to say maybe free write without judgment if possible and see what truthfully comes up. It could be, right, what's your relationship with the moon right now in this moment in your life or in your life so far? So maybe you were raised with some stories related to the moon in your childhood, or perhaps you tell stories to the youth in your life right now about the moon. Or for some of y'all, the moon could have a large role within your religion or within your spirituality. Now, I do want to just name, right, when it comes to getting into this kind of invitation for reflection, that some of y'all might feel bad if you don't have a relationship with the moon, or you might feel some sense of shame, right, that you don't necessarily know about certain things that I'm going to be sharing about. Um, or for other folks, perhaps you've had such a profound relationship with the moon that you've been shamed for that as an alleged lunatic. There's so many different relationships with the moon 
moon that we can bear witness to, like facets on a kaleidoscope. So it is important for me to name. It's not like there's any particular right or wrong answer here at all whatsoever, but just wanting to really start to get the ball rolling around getting a sense of if we've even been open to curiosity in this realm so far in our lives. And, you know, one of the ways where this is relevant really has to do with temporality or with time, right? So our understanding of time for most people on the planet has been astoundingly colonized. So by clocks, by imperialists, by the Gregorian calendar, even though for many of us, that's not our calendar. What about, right, when is the Islamic New Year? How about the Mexica New Year? How about Diwali? Or how about the Chinese New Year? Do we just presume that there is only one New Year and that it's on January 1st every year? Uh, what about, for example, for folks for whom this is relevant, if you ovulate, right, or if you have other bodily cycles that you pay attention to? I'm sure you get the picture at this point. We can be precise and specific instead of just sloppily universalizing like imperialism has pressured so many of the world's peoples to, including when it comes to our understanding of time. Is it embodied? Is it material? Or is it more or less an abstraction? So the most right kind of clear takeaway here that I know has been imposed on so many people all over the world is this kind of patterning out of seasonal rhythms or of cycles that are in sync with the earth, let alone of celestial beings. And so, for example, this is one of the reasons why within the context of Liberation Spring, right, our classes actually occur synced up to, right, seasons, right? So the off week between each of our four, right, classes every year, right, are during the equinoxes and are during the solstices. So that, right, when people get used to syncing up to the Earth's seasonality, that's an opportunity, right, to reorient and to recalibrate to, at least in many parts of the world, right, those four seasons. And of course, it merits naming. There are definitely regional variations on this front also, depending upon where we are in the world. Is it more like a monsoon season or a wet or a rainy season and a dry season, right? So this would be, again, just one more invitation to specificity, right, or some encouragement for us to all really be a little more precise instead of just almost by default taking on these universalizing generalizations that imperialism has normalized without even necessarily consciously recognizing that that's actually what we're doing. And I'm myself really looking forward to the day where taking that kind of, right, place-based, right, context seriously is going to be more the norm for more of our folks, especially our loved ones that might be pretty substantially in the belly of the beast right now, so to speak, so that might have been pretty substantially disconnected from, right, the Earth's temporality or natural seasons, cycles, rhythms. And as we begin to, right, get into some more experiments around that, I do just want to share a little bit of a heads up that I know that this can be, right, a provocative set of invitations on topics. 
especially because this is another one of those examples where so many of us say could have talked about our relationship with the moon, right, and mood, and could have actually been written off according to the kind of sanism that we have been talking about as allegedly a lunatic, as crazy, or some other predictable sanist epithet, right, or gaslighting language. And then all of a sudden, right, taking it back to this BBC article from last year, some folks with institutional affiliations and credentials and research funding come along and validate a little bit of what so many of us might have been saying for our entire lives and, right, familially and ancestrally for generations. But then those researchers that only woke up to some of this awareness last year, five minutes ago, relatively speaking, they get the credit, they get the citations. It's not like there's some global public apology issued to people who have been delegitimated in the name of so-called old wives' tales, so to speak. And by the way, did you notice what's up with that language? Old wives, really? The ageism there? Wives, the sexism there, the proper deed relationship, right? Um, so really merits noticing that, again, the way that so many forms of knowing get delegitimated is always already wrapped up in that kind of oppressive injustice. Like we can see even in that phrase, old wives tale, right, baked into it, right, the core of even that delegitimation is sexism, is this capitalism, is ageism, right? So some of these ageist and sexist ways of belittling some of our wisdom really go unchecked within the broader culture, especially if people are afraid of being judged in that way, so they just stay in the little box that they were told to stay in, which is essentially murderous for our capacity to have intelligence, knowing, let alone wisdom, right, perception, curiosity more broadly. So I just want to presence that also. It does raise serious questions about how we know what we presume to know. And also, I do just want to name that I know some of this might be quite obvious to many of you. Say, if you've got an intimate relationship with the ocean, like I definitely do, you already know that the moon is very relevant in material ways that are quite obviously discernible even to the naked human eye. So on this front, it is important to note that much of this sort of ignorance related to the moon is incredibly cultural. As in, many of us were raised to pay attention to the moon, whether it's for the purpose of our holidays or otherwise. Uh, and so some cultures, surprise, surprise, are a little late to the game in catching up when it comes to talking about right, the moon or lunacy more broadly. Uh, and especially in terms of, again, what they've been delegitimating from the rest of us for ages and are now finally ungraciously realizing has always already been legit. And again, that piece about, right, an ungracious realization 
really merits naming if you ask me. We're going to talk about this more later in the season when we talk about the language of conspiracy theories, because there's quite a similar phenomena at play there, where so often the mainstream will potentially pretty abusively and viciously deny, 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 and then we can see right how many decades it takes, or in some instances, how many years before then all of a sudden it's like this critical mass might decide, oh no, I totally always already knew that thing to begin with, whatever it might be, right? Like, oh, I was like definitely always against the Iraq war. And I'm like, I saw you in high school and in college. And no, that's definitely not the case at all whatsoever. And so it also just really merits naming, right? How, right? When that Overton window, so to speak, shifts in terms of, right, what is considered within the mainstream generally acceptable, right? Really seeing, right, are there acknowledgments of previous transgressions? Like in the case of this BBC article, it's not like they named like, wow, could this scientific ignorance have to do with deeply entrenched colonial biases, right? Or centuries of scientists not taking seriously the voices of the vast majority, right, of the world's population. Um, and so just wanting to put a few of those pieces out there for us to contend with. So here's an important note on process. Do you notice in these kinds of conversations how rarely, right, whether it's, say, ignorant scientists, right, or other sort of cultural supremacists, right, consult people or even attempt to learn from, right, theoretical traditions that are from cultures that are not their own, even at minimum to ensure that they're not just totally putting their foot in their mouth. What a missed opportunity for humility for people that actually take seriously, right, knowing what we're talking about. So this is one of the major aspects of Eurocentric epistemologies of ignorance. So if folks think that people who mostly look like them, sound like them, cite the sources that they think are credible, are basically the only valid knowers, they might obscure more than they illuminate, right? They might fail to learn from records, from experiences, from science, from so many other sources all over the rest of the planet. These are key considerations as we dive further into the politics of knowledge. So understanding lunar phases can help us with fishing successfully, naval navigation, not getting stung by jellyfish, planting and harvesting food, understanding our bodily rhythms, getting adequate sleep, surfing, any tide-related activity, our dreamscapes, skills that our ancestors wouldn't have been able to have survived without. Yet that through line gets obscured so often in the mainstream culture and especially by scientism. So with headlines that should have potentially read, modern Western scientists finally realized something indigenous peoples have been saying for thousands of years. That might be more of truth in advertising and a much more accurate headline. That's what critical media literacy can encourage, putting this week's seed in conversation with the first seed that we got into this autumn. 
So instead of, say, just going to amazingly refreshing sources, it is important to know how to break down the kind of propaganda and biased mediocrity that so many of our loved ones are saturated in. Unpacking how to discern in reading material that our communities are steeped in today, right? How to read what fronts as scientific discovery, for example. How often are, quote, modern, end quote, scientists literally the last players in town to recognize or to realize certain things? Kind of like that Columbusine phenomena that we talked about a few weeks ago also. So a couple of key takeaways that I would like to share with y'all based off of some of what we have gotten into so far would be the following. One, I sincerely encourage us to consider trusting things we observe that the mainstream doesn't validate. And then secondly, to not seek mainstream validation for what we know to be true. I'll say it again. So one, to consider trusting things we observe that the mainstream doesn't validate. And then secondly, to potentially not seek mainstream validation for what we know to be true. Because based off of so much that we have just been talking about, it's quite clear that, again, wisdom isn't trending in the mainstream culture. And so I also do just want to share, right, more broadly, a little bit of what is at stake in, right, that consideration, right, that encouragement I just shared, this couple of takeaways around, right, not just attempting to be totally adjusted to the mainstream and an oppressive culture that means we're just adjusting ourselves to oppression. And so I do want to share a little bit of an excerpt from a pretty legendary speech actually by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he talks about this in particular. So it was a talk that he gave at Western Michigan University where he said the following, Quote, there are certain technical words in the vocabulary of every academic discipline which tend to become cliches and stereotypes. Psychologists have a word which is probably used more frequently than any other word in modern psychology. It is the word maladjusted. This word is the ringing cry of the new child psychology. Now, in a sense, all of us must live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities, but there are some things in our social system to which I am proud to be maladjusted, and to which I suggest that you too ought to be maladjusted. I never intend to adjust myself to the viciousness of mob rule. I never intend to adjust myself to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to the tragic inequalities of an economic system, which takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the rich. I never intend to become adjusted to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating method of physical violence. I call upon you to be maladjusted. Well, you see, it may be that the salvation of the world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. The challenge to you this morning as I leave you is to be maladjusted. 
end quote. So the idea that Dr. King is sharing there, right, is that many aspects of society are not worth adjusting to. And so what does that mean for us when it comes to, right, having the self-respect, having the boundariedness to not just attempt to acquiesce to, right, whatever is considered mainstream, or to let who we are in the world and what we know are very cherished perception to get tainted by the astounding ignorance of what's trending within the broader consumer culture. And so I would also just want to share around that, that, right, the entire field of liberation psychology also really concurs with what MLK was just sharing with us, right? So liberation psychology, according to Dr. Bruce Levine in a dialogue related to Ignacio Martin Barro, who's one of the founders of the field of liberation psychology, describes it in the following way. So he says, unlike mainstream psychology, liberation psychology, quote, questions adjustment to the societal status quo, and it energizes oppressed peoples to resist all injustices. Liberation psychology attempts to discover how demoralized people can regain the energy necessary to take back the power that they had handed over to illegitimate authorities, end quote. And I would say this is something that we get into quite a lot in Liberation Springs class, Gaslight the System, the Politics of Madness and Sanity. Uh, so the founder of the field of liberation psychology, Ignacio Martin Barro, was actually assassinated um, by the U.S. federal government. And so what's that mean when a psychologist is getting taken out, right, as a part of a U.S. military operation? Sure sounds like they might have been saying something that merits the rest of us taking seriously. And more broadly, right, this field that really merits our attention for people that want to have if folks are into the language of psychology or psychiatry or mental health, right, any chance of understanding those fields in a way that has more truth value and is not just perpetuating the same tired, oppressive misunderstandings, right? This field of liberation psychology has a lot that merits consideration for us around this, right? Not being afraid of, say, getting called a lunatic, so I'm not going to look the way that certain people told me not to look because I want to make sure that everyone thinks I'm sane, even if they're running off of a cliff together in this annihilationist setting, like most people in the U.S. are with climate chaos, right, and so many other existential threats in this particular moment in history, right? So more broadly, this field also of liberation psychology, right, would have us naming, like, wait a minute, why is the largest professional association in the U.S. of psychologists legit endorsing torture and helping the U.S. military, right, learn how to torture people in an even more sophisticated way based off of their psychological research, right? And really naming actually the global mental health movement as a form of neocolonialism, right? And naming how horrifying it is <clears throat> that for the field, right, of mainstream psychology, 
maximizing individual pleasure is legit kind of centered as a default goal or end for the discipline itself. Right. So as opposed to doing vital consciousness raising of supporting people, understanding the mainstream culture is dehumanizing, it's alienating. We're allowed to critically think about that. We don't just have to be right conformist tools in a box that somebody told us to be in. That's totally unnecessary. Right. We don't just have to take all of this for granted or as a given. We're absolutely capable of right visioning in non-normative ways, even if that means that some people will gaslight us using this horrifically sanest language of, say, being a lunatic without even understanding that the lunar, right, kind of impact on the earth, including humans, right, and other bodies is discernible, even if their right current place of ignorance doesn't make room for acknowledging that, unfortunately. And so on that front also, I would want to invite us to consider, right, this field of liberation psychology, what might it have to say about the way that this language of lunacy is getting used in the U.S. today? Taking it back, right, like we first started off saying, sometimes it's invoked to let, right, people who are engaged in, right, violent and oppressive injustice off the hook, like, oh, the soldier was just deranged, that's why they were just massacring people, right, so we can be more precise with our language and name, that's not what lunacy is, like, we can call imperialists imperialists, that's actually really important, uh, and then secondly, right, how important for us to see well, then, right, in terms of other usages of this language of lunacy, right, what's at stake when people are just getting delegitimated, right? One of the most classic tropes of sanism, right? This is one of the, right, core thematics that I invite us to take seriously when it comes to the fields of political psychology. So around that, I have another invitation to share with y'all, maybe even say just for the next week, if this is something that you're open to. I want to encourage you to actually observe every time you notice any words related to sanism getting used. Could be in pop culture, could be in politics, maybe it's in your own internal monologue, right? But maybe you don't even say anything to anyone else. So what might some of this language be, right? Maybe something's getting called crazy, insane, bonkers, bananas, nuts, psycho, and so on and so forth, right? So just to notice, and you could even keep a little bit of a log, like if you have a sheet of paper where you just kind of write down on a daily basis and maybe just for a week, when is this language getting used? And then part two of the invitation that I'd really like to encourage you all to consider is the following an invitation to be more specific, like could there be a synonym that could have gotten used instead and that might have actually enhanced our understanding of what was going on? So for example, in the case of, right, a soldier that's a part of the U.S. military massacring civilians instead of just being 
so quick to invoke that tired cliche of saying, oh, poor thing, right, or this happens, right, how often with, right, white, cis male, right, mass shooters in the U.S., right, we see these kinds of double standards time and time again when the default kind of refrain is just like, oh, so sad, they must have had a hard life or a troubled childhood, but the same language so often doesn't get deployed or that same kind of empathy is in massive deficit when it comes to people, right, that are not white cis men. So again, which is why I'm in part asking, like, is there a synonym we could use? Like, were they being a privileged, murderous, violent, right, annihilationist, imperialist, right? Or were they invoking, whether it's a toxic masculinity, white supremacy, right? So I really want to invite us to be more specific instead of just defaulting to the sanest language. This is one of the reasons why also, frankly, I'm super disappointed with some people that I have a lot of respect and admiration for when it comes to some of the analysis that they share with the world, but that will just really easily say things like Trump is deranged, right? Or Trump is a lunatic. And it's like, be more specific around what you're actually concerned around, because that'll actually help us get more clear around what's problematic and what needs to change instead of just this kind of sanest name calling. Um, and then also, right, when it comes to that weaponization of the language of lunacy, right, or if the sanest jargon more broadly, I really want to encourage us to see within our own inner monologue if any of that languaging is a part of our vocabulary, right? What if we just encourage ourselves to be a little bit more specific? What might that allow? Like what might a synonym be just so that we can be communicating more clearly, setting down some of these forms of sanism and getting more specific about what we're actually talking about to begin with, right? Uh, and then I'd also be remiss to not close out with a few more ideas related to the moon. Um, so, of course, right here, I'm sure you all have noticed that I'm in part, right, using lunacy as one entry point to talk about, right, a take on mad pride, a take on dismantling sanism, but from more of a decolonial perspective, one that is rooted in the earth, right, including the earth's moon. Um, that might seem paradoxical for folks, but we can sit with that. Uh, but we could also actually just talk about the moon and reconnecting with the moon, right, especially for folks for whom some of that weaponization of the language of lunacy might have had an impact in your life, right? Um, so I just wanted to share in closing a few ideas related to lunar connection or lunar reconnection for folks for whom, right, that might be interesting. So one thing that I would want to share is, right, just as a part of this invitation to notice cycles that might not already be a part of our consciousness. So you could even say if you have a calendar or maybe you have, right, a planner or a schedule, you can write into your calendar at least say every full moon and every new moon to start, right? And then it might be easier to recognize these patterns, right? And then to be able to play with your schedule accordingly where you've got the capacity to do so, right? So appreciating the most of that timing. So at a minimum, I invite us to pay attention, especially if that's not culturally a part of our awareness already. So then our pattern recognition can become that much more useful. 
right? And then once we have some awareness, even at that level, just to start off, right, of the lunar phases, right? One thing that I've loved doing in different moments in my life, taking it back to with an aunt, right, when I was in high school doing full moon hikes, right, or taking walks, right, under the full moon, if that's safer, safer available to y'all, um, right? So then experimenting on that front, right, if that's something that you're interested in, depending upon the phase of the moon, uh, and I know, right, Madeline Train, I wish more people were out as lunatics. It helps if you bleed to notice what moon you're in conjunction with. Oh, you were just like such a mind reader right now. I'm getting to the menstruation piece immediately. Thank you for bringing that in, right? Um, so also you can engage in moon gazing, right? Together with loved ones, maybe even in other parts of the world, right? Um, and in part as a way to let ourselves feel connected to something larger than ourselves. Um, and we can also observe, right, if moon phases impact our sleep, maybe our relationships, we can pay attention to and track in terms of harmony, conflict, all sorts of different things, right? And menstruation and ovulation, if relevant, right? How empowering to know that it's possible to track your period by looking at the phase of the moon. But again, how would we know if we haven't even tried it or if we didn't even know that was a possibility, right? And the next step, how about your dreamscape? Do you have, say, enhanced dream recall around full moons, around new moons, at any particular lunar phase, right? If these are not things that we're used to paying attention to, then we might right now be in a place of a little bit of ignorance, or this might be, right, a totally new realm for us. And if so, that's completely fine, right? We can be beginners and we can just invite that curiosity and see what it yields, so I also invite us to consider what other possibilities for connection are available to us. Is there a relationship that you might like to have with the moon? And bonus points if you include children in any kid-friendly activities here. That way they hopefully won't have to reconnect as adults because they've already been connected. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So as we're wrapping up, I do want to invite y'all to share out if you know anyone that might find this material beneficial. Feel free to kick down funds via Patreon or PayPal if you are able to. Thank you for listening, uh, and please don't plagiarize my ideas. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing y'all next week for some more weeding and seeding. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours.